I have not ever had, and I don't think there will be again, a tour in what was the 80s, 90s Condé Nast world, the Devil Wears Prada world. Talk was my greatest exposure to that. You take car services everywhere and you have lunch out at Michael's or Cafe des Artistes or whatever every day. And you expense your cheese and cocktails for when you have your famous people over for your dinners, right? Like those were the expense reports I was doing and you expense the massages. I didn't know how unusual it was at the time, in my career in journalism since, I look back and I just shake my head and I'm like, what? Can those memories I have be real? Was that what people were doing with money? Because it's so antithetical to everything that's happened to the industry since. Part of the reason I'm interested in talk here is that it does feel sort of like the last high watermark before everything starts to recede. Right. And I think there are questions about, is it coincidental that it was the last high watermark? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not really trying to blame the downfall of journalism on Talk Magazine. I certainly wouldn't ever do that. But it was an example of taking cash and lighting it on fire just to see how pretty it would be when it burned. Hi, my name is Andrew Federov. And I'm a reporter at The Fine Print, a newsletter covering the media industry. This is our podcast, where we read an issue of a vintage magazine with a modern editor and hear from the people who worked on the issue. For a transcript with photos and bonus interview material, and for media reporting like our interview with Fran Leibowitz about the magazines in and out of her life, our elegy for the New Yorker's goings-on about town section, write-ups of lots of New York media parties, and our continuing series on media nepotism, subscribe to The Fine Print at thefineprintnyc.com. Our first episode is about Talk Magazine's September 1999 premiere issue. The other voice you heard was Rebecca Traster, who was an assistant at Talk in the late 90s and is today a features writer at New York Magazine. In July of 1998, she read on the front page of the New York Times, above the fold, that Tina Brown, the editor who had previously revived Vanity Fair and The New Yorker, was leaving The New Yorker to start a new magazine with Harvey Weinstein and Hearst. It was Brown's first attempt at building a major magazine from scratch. The first issue, which the staff put together over the course of a year, was a showcase of her wide-ranging sensibility. It featured a profile of George W. Bush on the 2000 campaign trail by a young Tucker Carlson, Hillary Clinton talking about Monica Lewinsky, Tom Stoppard discovering that he's Jewish, Martin Amos taking on, quote, snobo-sadist Hannibal Lecter, a spread of childhood photos of JFK Jr. published just after his death, and Gwyneth Paltrow posing for some very uncomfortable-looking photos. This was a Harvey Weinstein magazine, after all. Talk folded in 2002, having amassed a circulation of 670,000 and lost an estimated 55 million of its backers' money. Today, it's remembered less for its jam-packed, overstuffed first issue or any of those that followed than for its launch party. I still hear about that party all the time while out reporting for the fine print. Media types of a certain age bring it up as the quintessential magazine party. The last great flowering before the industry's unreversed decline. So I had to ask Traster, were you at the party? Yeah, I was. What do you remember about it? Is it as opulent as everybody says? It was bananas. Bananas. It was Liberty Island. I mean, I wasn't at the party like, woohoo, having a good time. I was at the party. I was, I think I was working, checking people in on the Battery Park side. And finally, the guests had come through and we were able to go over to the party. So I got there probably halfway through, in fairness. 
Yes, it was opulent. And Rudy Giuliani had made a big deal about it. And so it was also a thing and a tabloid thing and a New York tabloid thing in an era where that really meant something. Have to remember, this is pre-Gawker. It's not pre-internet, but it kind of is pre-internet. It's pre-blogs, so to speak. Like that was a word that I learned a couple of years later when I was working at The Observer. So the tabloids really ran the game in New York City media. And they had fixated on the Talk Magazine launch party. It felt like something big. I mean, I know this happens and it's happened at other publications I've worked for where you feel like it's the center of the universe, but it felt like everyone is talking about this and I am here. That's Sarah Safian, once a reporter researcher at Talk. And there was a little of enjoying grumbling about, oh yeah, we're at Talk. It's really crazy. People are like, oh my God, what's that like? Curious about how is it in there? It felt like the whole city was a buzz about the party, this magazine, Tina Brandt. I just really felt like I was at the center of what everyone was talking about. It feels like the most important thing when you're there. And it was a spectacle the way the magazine kind of felt like a spectacle. It was over the top. This was every celebrity you've ever seen from Madonna to Christopher Reeve. It was everybody, every public person, everybody who owned restaurants, everyone who owned magazines, everyone who owned movies, any actors. I mean, my friends were making out with celebrities. It was just wild. This is Alicia Clark, formerly the assistant to Talk's publisher. There were picnic blankets and beautiful lights glowing overhead as you sat looking at the Statue of Liberty with fireworks going off. I think a little bit of my thesis for this episode is that the Talk party has overshadowed the actual content of the magazine. Well, I know. In fact, the great David Brown once said to me, never give a party that's better than the magazine. But actually, the magazine was a hell of a lot better than the party is the truth. But the party did become an iconic party. That, of course, is the unmistakable voice of Tina Brown. I have to say, our call didn't have the best audio quality, but it's very worth it to hear one of the geniuses of magazine editing describe the conception of a single issue in extreme detail. People kind of imagined that the reason that it began was like some mad expression of who we were, but actually it did all begin because Rudy Giuliani banned us from using the Brooklyn Navy Yard when he found pettily that his competitor in the senator's race was Hillary Clinton and he did not want to see anything that publicized us. So he just said, you're not having the Brooklyn Navy. That petty he was. So of course, being Harvey, one of the very, very few things one can say about Harvey in his favor, that got his downer up. And he said, you're going to have to just find a federal site. We'll do it bigger, bigger, bigger. I think it was Gabby Doppel who said to me, why don't we do it on Liberty Island? And I then went to see Robert Isabel, who was the great party entrepreneur of all times, who with whom I had did many a wonderful party. He was the visual genius behind Studio 54. So Robert said, I've always wanted to do a party on Liberty Island. I said, the problem is there's no electricity at all. It's just like complete darkness. Even if we get the place, he said, we'll do Chinese lanterns. It's going to be phenomenal. No one will be able to see anything, but there'll be Chinese lanterns. And then he starts to sketch this extravagance is going to be so fabulous. And then it was like, well, how are we going to get the ferries over there? Like, every single thing, we found a way to get around the whole problem of doing it on Liberty Island. And then I invited a huge mix of amazing people. And then Harvey fed into that mix some of his amazing people. And so that's how we wound up with, I think of them as thinking now, it's like the ship of fools. But I mean, the barge sort of sailing up to Liberty Island and disgorging Madonna and Salman Rushdie and Demi Moore and Joan Didion. So it was like my literary world and Harvey's crazy celebrity world. And it was just amazing. We had a firework display, which then I had George Plimpton do the narration. It just built and built until we had every element of this thing it was just so amazing. This was the party where Salman Rushdie 
under a Chinese lantern met Padma Lakshmi for the first time. The editor of the New York Times was up the top of Liberty with Joan Didion and John Gregory Dunn. And on the way back, I was on the last barge with Helen Mirren and Natasha Redgrave with Liam Neeson. And we were sort of sailing out on that last barge. And as we passed the Twin Towers, there was a huge gush of waves that just soaked us to beginning to end. And we all sort of laughed. And I sometimes think about it because that was like the end of the 20th century. I mean, within a year, the Twin Towers were down, everything changed. So in a way, I think people think of the talk party as a sort of end of a moment and uh, end of an era. It was a late end of the 20th century. To help us deconstruct the premiere issue of Talk, we invited Sarah Leonard, editor-in-chief of Lux, the glossy magazine of socialist feminism that puts a 21st century spin on the tradition Talk comes out of. How did you first get into Talk? Well, I love Tina Brown's Vanity Fair Diaries. It is the most entertaining book about media. It's just piles of gossip, but it's also a really good rendering of how you put a magazine together internally. And she's a sort of whirlwind and extremely excited about making an excellent magazine. You know, she loves magazines. And Vanity Fair of that era was kind of brilliant. And she talks a lot about the mix the sort of mix of entertainment and glamour and intellectual work and reporting that altogether creates a sensibility that was Vanity Fair or was talk. And when I put together issues of Lux, I often have that in the back of my head because to me, what makes a good magazine is not just, oh, this issue had this one really good article. It's that X was next to Y. It's in the juxtaposition that you get a sensibility. And I think she's kind of a genius at that. And so I really loved her description of putting together Vanity Fair, which is a magazine, of course, that does not particularly overlap with my politics or my worldview, but I still think is brilliantly put together. And so I was looking at how she had put together other things. And I was curious about talk. And of course, she did talk with Harvey Weinstein. So that was back in the news. And so I bought the inaugural issue of talk off of eBay, as I buy many old magazines, like a magazine nerd. (laughs) Uh, And then I just I actually started reading it. I like had it by my bed. You know, it's from 1999. It's not really breaking news. And I still found it compelling. (laughs) I was like, that's a sign of like a pretty good magazine, you know? Totally. Within Tina Brown's career, it's it's sort of the magazine that she got to make from scratch. I mean, the yeah. Daily Beast kind of counts, but that's not a magazine, right? You know, talk is funny because it looks sort of tabloidy. And Tina Brown comes out of, you know, her first magazine that she edited herself was Tatler in the UK. I mean, she can have like a tabloidy sensibility, but you do get a sense of her really breaking free from her seven years at the New Yorker, which was much more refined in a way. Um, And there was hardly any photography. I mean, her New Yorker had one photographer. Is it Avedon? It was Avedon. It was first Avedon and then Max Baducal took over for him. Yeah. So, you know, that's a very streamlined sensibility. And this issue has a wide range of the best photographers. It clearly takes that from Vanity Fair. People who photograph for Vanity Fair also photograph for talk. I think there is some controversy over who felt that they could betray Condé Nast by doing (laughs) that. 
but she really has the best in here. And so you get that sort of entertainment combined with hard news element of Vanity Fair, but it feels certainly in its design a little bit more rough and tumble than Vanity Fair does. The cover has Gwyneth goes bad. It's like <laughs> Gwyneth Paltrow in bondage wear, hilariously directly under Hillary Clinton. <laughs> Three Hillary Clintons. Three Hillary Clintons next to the headline, Hillary opens up, quote, this was a sin of weakness. And then Gwyneth goes bad. And then George W. gets real. Um, the requisite JFK photographs <laughs> seem to follow from Vanity Fair as well as some stuff about the unsolved mysteries of Princess Diana. I mean, there's a lot in common with Vanity Fair, you know, the Safari Massacre. There's always some super pulpy, but also well-reported story of drama, often stories about Africa in a way that feels very Safari-ish, this kind of gross thing that magazines did then of trying to create sort of exoticism for their readers in their pages through these stories that were not actually foreign affairs stories, but stories of the life and death of some dramatic individual. I mean, Vanity Fair tipped over into the way they created some real charge in their pages was often by profiling in a glamorous way. And they would say a critical way, but it was undeniably often glamorous dictators or often their wives. So like in Imelda Marcos story and post Tina Brown, that absolutely continued in Vanity Fair. I mean, I remember this was not her era. This was much, much more recent. But, you know, a story in Vanity Fair featuring Eric Prince hanging out of a helicopter doing his mercenary worst, but looking very, very cool. And that's like the dark side of this sort of sensibility. But I do think a talk is a little scrappier and more aggressive feeling than Vanity Fair, which just feels a little more highbrow. Talk was really birthed by a long running vision I had when I was editor in chief of The New Yorker from 92 through when I was asked to do talk, which was, I think, 98. I felt strongly that The New Yorker needed to become more than a magazine. I thought it should be a magazine plus a book company, plus a film production company and a radio show, which today, of course, would be podcasts. And I tried to persuade Cy Newhouse, the chairman of Coninast, that The New Yorker now should be what I called the HBO of print. Excuse me, it was the best idea you could possibly have had. It was the right thing to do, right? I mean, I was 20 years ahead of my time, let's face it. But he didn't like it and didn't want to do it. And he kept saying, no, no, no. He actually said the words to me, would still gall my soul. Stick to your knitting, he said. You're a magazine editor, edit a magazine. So this kind of boiled away inside me. And at that point, just as I'm sitting there boiling away, I go to a dinner and there's Harvey Weinstein and he's my dinner partner. And he absolutely loves The New Yorker and everything I've done. And he keeps telling me he wants me to go work for him. Now, pause, okay, rewind. I know people will be thinking, oh my God, how could she? But at that moment, we're talking about the Harvey Weinstein of The English Patient, of My Beautiful Laundrette, of all of these great movies. He was about to release Shakespeare in Love. So Harvey was like the pinnacle of quality content, essentially. So to me, Harvey was like music to my ears. So anyway, then my contract comes up. Cy offers me a really excellent deal. 
which I found the other day in a, <laughs> a drawer. It was like, what was I thinking, giving up that deal? But I was sort of havering and havering. And Harvey just came at me like a barrel of bricks and said, come and do a new magazine with me. You will have a book company. You will have a production arm. You will have any synergy you can name and a magazine. Well, I mean, it was what I'd been dreaming of, right? So that's why I said yes. And that's why I left. I'd had 18 years working for Cy Newhouse. You know, I was 26 or something when he bought out the 27. So he was like the only boss I'd ever known. Condé Nast was the only place I'd actually ever worked. But I really wanted to be a quote entrepreneur because at that time, don't forget, it was the dot-com explosion. That was the other piece of the reason I left was that everyone around me was suddenly an entrepreneur, right? And the other problem with Condé Nast was that you got extremely well paid, but you were never going to have any piece of anything. It was just a family owned company. And that's why Sai overpaid everybody because he could never offer anybody any kind of piece of the company. I knew it was a finite situation and I wanted to have a piece. So that was the, that was another very attractive piece of it to me. And Sai was very, very upset about my leaving. I mean, hugely upset. And he vowed that he couldn't possibly help me in any way. In fact, his editors were sort of empowered to spend as much money as they wanted in making sure that no writer or photographer could ever write for talk or photograph for talk and also be part of Condé Nast. So it put a lot of difficulties in my way. When Brown left Condé Nast, she took with her Ron Galati, the star publisher of Vogue, and the inspiration for Sex and the City's primary love interest, Mr. Big. As Galati admitted to Jay McInerney, before getting to Vogue, he'd run a brothel in the Philippines. Alicia Clark, Galati's assistant at Talk, had previously been an assistant at Weinstein's Miramax. She watched as her new boss realized the scope of his new challenge. Did you have much sense of his reputation going in? I knew that he was famed for being the basis of Mr. Big, and I knew that he was a big persona who dated a lot of supermodels. But it was a growth time for him. I think there were several times in Ron's life where he really was pushed to grow. And that was certainly one of them because he had always been the bigwig, I think, over at Condé. For him to meet someone like Harvey, who had such a reign over that company, and even Disney at the time, I think was just, it was a whole new world for him. And probably a little sobering. Condé Nast had a double reason to be furious with me. Not only had I left, but I also took their best advertising sales guy. Ron and I were like these two orphans racketing about town without an office. We had to start everything from scratch. We learned as we went along. I mean, I'd never been an entrepreneur in my life, and nor had Ron, as a matter of fact. Doing stuff without the basis of a company is the most daunting thing. Margaret Dawson, Tina Brown's assistant at Talk, felt that Galati had what it took to survive in the new environment. It's interesting because I feel like if you'd taken away the Harvey, you would probably say Ron was probably the most aggressive person. I mean, there's a reason why he was nicknamed Mr. Big, but he was never, he wasn't toxic the way that Harvey was. Within day one, Harvey Weinstein, the ebullient, bon vivant, generous, come work for me, it's all going to be marvelous. It was like Jekyll and Hyde. Like from the day I signed that contract, everything changed. I knew from the moment I had my first meeting at Miramax downtown in that terrible, dingy, office <laughs> that I'd made a terrible mistake because Harvey convinced the first meeting with his staff, his two or three key executives, that terrible blue sofa in that room, which I think of as the Plymouth Rock of the Me Too movement. <laughs> and he starts like horror, you know, within five minutes. He's so incredibly abusive to his staff. I can't believe it. He turned to one of his key executives and says, fucking sit up. And I go like, you know, don't forget, I've only ever worked for Sign Newhouse, right? Who's like the most courteous, mousy kind of guy. He's like, 
what the fuck are you doing? That's a stupid idea. And I was like, taken aback. And I thought, oh my God, this guy's going to get up and slam the door and say, I quit. No, he just went on sitting there. And I realized with sort of mounting horror that this was kind of his MO, that this is sort of how he treated people. And then immediately I came to realize that he really saw himself as the editor-in-chief of Talk. He had all of these ideas. Some of them were quite good, but some of them were just loony because they were just ideas that couldn't be done. I mean, he was always saying things like, let's rent an aircraft hangar and bring in Tom Cruise and photograph him with Richard Avedon. And I mean, it was all these sort of huge ideas. But at the same time, there was never any budget for any of it. So that also completely rattled me because I'd always had complete editorial control with Sai. I mean, I have, didn't have sort of marauding mad person coming in with these massively ridiculous ideas and then having to sort of fight them off. It's no secret Harvey was completely controlling of all of his projects. So it's interesting because the trial and all of the coverage of him, all of it sounds extremely familiar. This micromanaging, this anger, that's a lot to deal with compared to the Newhouse family and Condé Nast and a very set way of doing things for a long time within which Tina was able to spread her wings creatively. Very different dynamic under an upstart. Leisha Clark, Ron Galati's assistant, saw a lot of that too. That was the luxury of it, and that was the problem of it all. Harvey had way too much influence over it. Harvey was tired of being told by Graydon Carter that he couldn't get his stars on his magazine. This was his vehicle, like, screw you all. I'm Harvey. I'm going to make my own magazine. I'm going to push my own people. I don't need to ask for permission anymore. Absolutely, there were phone calls coming in hourly about how to and how not to portray certain people. It also became clear to me that he saw one of the great assets of having Talk Magazine, that as he roamed around town, every gossip columnist who was about to do a bad story, he would say, you need to have a contract with Talk Magazine. I want you to go and see Tina Aaron because I'm going to tell her to hire you. We're going to do a great piece. And I'd hear from these really cheesy second string gossip columnists all the time who'd been told they were going to have a writing contract. And there was just no way in the world I was going to sign them even a diary item, let alone a contract. And again, it was like, where's this budget coming from? that you keep castigating me about. It became so destabilizing. But this was a time when that sort of behavior from powerful men was not only accepted as normal, but often given a gloss of necessity. For Rebecca Traster, it was an exposure to the kind of sexual politics she's written about since. When I was a young person working within the Miramax orbit, a lot of the stories that were passed around between people were about what we would later come to understand as and be able to cogently frame as Harvey's sexual predation, but that at the time were told as, well, that person slept with Harvey to get a role. That was an active point of conversation amongst young people who paid attention to Miramax or worked for Miramax. It was understood. And it was also understood that you wanted to avoid his bad temper. Nobody was like, oh, Harvey, what a nice guy. People were scared of him, in awe of him. I should also say that it was not long after that, that you did begin to hear scarier stories. It wasn't from then to me too. There were years in which people tried to report on it, tried really, really hard to report on it until Jody and Megan and Ronan all did. But I'm saying that when I first got to talk, he was a figure who loomed large, who fit a certain kind of role that, yes, was completely associated with what we would now describe as 
abusive, harassing, assaulting behavior, both sexualized. I mean, later, much later in my life, Harvey screamed at me in public and assaulted my colleague without it being sexualized. That was later when I was at The Observer. But the figure, the imposing, angry, brutal figure he cut was in my first encounters with it, definitely simply understood as the embodiment of a certain kind of power and authority and one that was bringing glory to New York City as a filming destination and Harvey was going to win Oscars. He was making great movies and apparently you had to do that by brutalizing people. The Weinstein was overbearing and brutal in many ways. He gave Brown a free hand in choosing her staff. She filled the upper reaches of the masthead with people who'd been with her at Vanity Fair and The New Yorker, like Gabby Doppel, David Kuhn, and Howard Lally. For the rank and file, she scoured New York's independent publications. I always say to people when they start new things, you have to recognize when you are calling people, you're calling as you. When people go, oh, they were great. They know how to get celebrities. They were on the NBC Today show. I say, you don't understand. That's not what I want to hear. Because if you say, hello, I'm from the Today Show, you immediately can get somebody to pay attention to you. If you say I'm calling as me and I'm trying to persuade you to do this thing for this magazine or show that no one's ever heard of yet, it's a whole other proposition and you need a whole other level of scrappiness, seduction techniques, strategy, cunning, hustle. You are a different hire from someone who has already been in the sleep worlds of established media. We spent time trying to build that team with people who were that way. I mean, I got tremendous knockbacks from people who thought it sounded exciting, but weren't going to leave their great places of comfort. So we had to find new people. And we found amazing new people who ended up being the establishment of now people like Sam Sifton, who was on a small independent weekly and now is the food baron of the New York Times. Jonathan Marler, who was, I think, at the Forward, a newspaper, and now, of course, is a major author with the New York Times. Daniel Mattoon, who I think, I can't remember where Danielle came from, but for a long time, she then was culture editor of the New York Times. The Times basically took everybody from Talk Magazine, Virginia Heffernan, who became the New York Times TV critic. On the other hand, much of the clerical staff, like Traster, were drawn from the Miramax orbit. It was absolutely my first magazine job. And I had no intention of becoming a journalist at the time. I think that's really important to note. I did not go to journalism school. I did not think I was going to become a journalist. I did not have a goal of working at a magazine. I came to talk after having worked as a personal assistant to an actor for a year or two, Harvey Keitel. And Harvey Keitel's offices were in Tribeca, right across from the Tribeca Film Center, which was the home base of Miramax. I came to that talk job entirely through my association, not directly with Harvey Weinstein, but with many other young people who worked for him. But what is true is that there was a raising of the fortunes of a generation of journalists because Tina actively went out and picked a group of young people for the group of young editors who were going to do the bulk of the assigning and the editing of the stories, Tina went to what at the time were more independent publications. And I was an even younger person who had not come from anywhere that had anything to do with journalism. And I got to meet and befriend and hang out with these people. There was a tremendous mixing between the editors, the assistants, the fact checkers. There was a lot of mixing socially between the business side and the editorial side. It had some startup spirit because it was starting up for so very long. And while there certainly was a big gulf between Tina and the rest of the editorial team, there was not 
a big power gulf or age gap between the editors and their assistants and researchers and fact checkers. And that permitted a degree of social mixing and fun and pleasure and getting to know each other. And in my case, selfishly, it also allowed people who were senior to me, but connected in the rest of journalism to say, oh, Rebecca, maybe you should consider being a journalist. As Brown gathered her team, she sketched out what her magazine would be. Alicia Clark, Galati's assistant then, remembers the inception of the name. She wanted one word. She wanted power. She wanted inclusivity. She wanted to be progressive. She wanted to be eye-catching. If you remember, there was a video made. She was talking about it, and, and her we always used to laugh. Her, in her signature line, she says, want to talk, need to talk. Talk. She loved the name. When we landed on it, she really drummed up excitement around it. Like, you, you want to talk. You need to talk. You must talk. Talk. Okay. She wanted some of the glamour, but she wanted the grit. She wanted the intellectual type. She wanted the iconicism. She wanted Patrick de Marchelier to photograph everything. She wanted Tom Stoppard as her head writer. It was different. It was over the top. She didn't want a budget for certain. For much of its gestation, the magazine existed as a series of mock-ups. I walked out of Talk Magazine with a ton of paper. And among the things that I have somewhere in my attic, they're all in boxes. Yeah, I don't live in like a shrine to Talk Magazine, weirdly. But somewhere up there are these really stunning art mock-ups. I mean, I didn't take anything huge. They were little 8 by 11, I think. Early cover concept ideas that are very beautiful. I mean, and they were being thrown out and they were really early. They couldn't have been more different from the Gwyneth Hillary where the cover wound up or where it continued to go. These were shocking images, somebody's heart and somebody's hand. They were startling photographs on the front. At the time, I was completely obsessed with European news magazines like Stern and Parry Match and those great news glosses of Europe, which don't really exist here. Time and Newsweek were always sort of small, actual news magazines, whereas Parry Match or Stern are a really interesting combination of visual splash with news, current affairs, with literary standards. And I thought that's what we need to have here. And there was a Dutch magazine of the 70s called Twen, which I became completely obsessed by, as I <laughs> tend to do. Twen magazine in the 70s was a great Dutch glossy magazine. And Nova magazine in England in the 70s was another great magazine. Those were the magazines I wanted to do. That was my design concept. Two tenets were thinner, upscale newspaper. Size was big. Twen was a big magazine. It wasn't like a Time or a Newsweek. It was the size of Parry Match. And then it was going to be saddle stitched like one of those news magazines. And the design, the typography had a kind of hip tabloid flavor to it. And I really had this idea of how I wanted it to look. And I adored the way the first magazine looked. I thought it looked so good. And I thought it did everything it was supposed to do. And Harvey just hated it. I mean, he wanted it to be Vanity Fair. He immediately said, Absolutely not. I don't like your concept. We're going to do glossy paper. We're going to do perfect bound magazine. I, 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 you're going to have celebrities on the cover. Why would I want to do Vanity Fair again when I had done the best Vanity Fair imaginable at Conde Nast with everything great? I mean, I left Vanity Fair because I didn't want to keep doing the celebrity stuff and went to the New Yorker because I didn't want celebrities on the cover. I wanted a multi-picture cover like you have on yeah. Stern. And the first cover, for instance, has Hillary Clinton plus Gwyneth Paltrow plus George Bush Jr., who was running for president, in these boxes. It was almost like a magazine version of a homepage, actually. 
And it looked great, I thought, really fresh and interesting. And it didn't mean that you were dependent on one film star, which I was so bored with as an idea. I asked Sarah Leonard, our editor critic, about her familiarity with these antecedents. Have you ever picked up an issue of Paris Match? You know, I've never seen an issue of Paris Match from this era. I've seen Paris Match in our era. And I think the first time I really looked at a copy of Paris Match was when Yanis Varoufakis ill-advisedly allowed himself and his wife to be photographed for Paris Match in the middle of trying to solve the Greek financial crisis. Um, (laughs) Not a great move. Um, You know, it's like pictures of their beautiful apartment. He's playing piano. His wife is from a wealthy family and famously is perhaps the inspiration for Pulp's song, Common People. She did go to art school in the UK. So that was uh, the first time I really had reason to look closely at an issue of Ferris Match. I was covering the Greek crisis. I'm very focus sympathetic. I think a lot of stuff he did during the Greek crisis, people like to blame on him, but no one else was doing any better. But you never need to go in Paris match. Just don't do it. You never have to tweet. You never have to be photographed for Paris match. But you did have to be photographed for talk in 99, I guess. What do you think of the cover design? It doesn't Like, if I saw this on a newsstand, maybe I would be intrigued, but I don't know if my attention would be caught by anything. Yeah, it's funny. Vanity Fair was famously appealing for its covers, which were often these gorgeous Annie Leibovitz celebrities or Helmut Newton shooting something a little bit creepy and controversial. or They're very, very striking photographs. And this is like this weird tabloidy thing where like there's no one good photograph on this cover. There are arguably three bad photographs and a lot of headlines. And I still love it. I have to say, I feel like I really love a magazine that is going to give me substantial information, you know, that there's a reason to read, but is also finding ways to appeal to my lowest sensibility And I like a magazine that's like a candy box. It's like, ooh, I want to look at that. I want to look at this. And this sort of does that. It's like you have your politics, you have your celebrity, even when the covers are trying to get you to read a couple of major political features, one on Hillary Clinton and one on George Bush, they are packaging them as personality stories. As an editor over the years, I've learned a lot from that, where a lot of the political writing we do in Lux is framed around a person. And we use profiles to hopefully tell quite substantial political stories. And talk is really great at focusing its political stories on dramatic individuals. The downside of that is you have like a little bit of an access journalism project where the pieces can be heavy on compelling personal anecdotes and light on the political analysis. And we can get into the political profiles, but I I do think that that happens here. And you get a taste of like when Tina Brown launched The Daily Beast, she talked a lot about how if you read The Daily Beast, and you rolled up to a cocktail party that evening, you would know what was going on. You would have stuff to say. And one wonders, does that fucking matter? Like, I don't know if that's a good criteria, but you get a little bit of that in talk 
where like 100%, if you read this issue, you would roll up to a party with a lot of interesting things to say and entertaining anecdotes. And the question is, can that be married with really substantial reporting that makes a difference? Right. One of those things to say might be George Bush seems like a nice guy. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to say about that profile. The number one thing being it was by Talk Magazine contributing writer Tucker Carlson, which is very jarring to look back at now. 1999, he was like a Republican moderate in a bow tie. (laughs) And he was writing this profile of George W. Bush which is sort of trying to explain his everyman appeal. It's about the 2000 election. And the impressive thing about the access journalism here is there are great quotes. There are great anecdotes. George W. Bush is just swearing up a storm constantly. But it does this sort of dance between this actually quite well-written political portrait of this candidate, you get a real sense of his personality. It's a very compelling read. It's well done. And the sense that Tucker Carlson is doing some light propaganda here in a style that would come to define him later. So his whole shtick about Bush is it seems like Bush doesn't actually care if he's ever president. He's so confident in himself. It's actually confusing to people why he even wants to be president. It's like he just ended up here and he doesn't need attention like other politicians need attention. It's very flattering. You have Tucker Carlson manufacturing these fake acts of rebellion by wealthy people, basically. And it's like that's his whole sensibility. That's his sensibility today. Most of Talk's former staff had a hard time seeing that continuity. The feeling at the time was that Carlson was one of the tribe, a consummate media professional. Traster remembers others trying to mollify her outlier perturbation. I remember being assured that Tucker was a good guy. I remember being assured that George Bush was a good guy. (laughs) In kind of the same tone that I was assured that Tucker was. I was repelled by the holding up of George Bush as a regular guy. I was like, what now? I don't want to make it seem as though I was mounting some deep political objection. I was just like, what? why, why? And I remember having people say to me, no, he's pretty good. That's the vibe I remember because I was distressed. It wouldn't have mattered. Who cares if I was distressed? I was an assistant there. But I do remember people saying to me, no, 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 it's fine. Bush is actually pretty interesting. He's a reasonable guy. And Tucker's funny. There was a lot of affection in the office for Tucker. And Tucker Carlson's prominence didn't originate with Roger Ailes. Tucker was the favorite conservative guy of a lot of mainstream journalists, and that was very evident at Talk Magazine. Margaret Dawson, then Brown's assistant, was one of those who was shocked by who Carlson has become. I'm just amazed at the Tucker Carlson of it. I'm like, what? People say that they're like, what did you used to who? What? (laughs) Like very different time. And a lot of people don't know that about him. They just know the Fox part of it. It's not that it wasn't always him, but my memory was very different of him. But it doesn't mean that he can't be both wanting to blow up the democracy (laughs) and also a pretty good writer and a pretty good reporter. 
Well, I mean, I'm completely stunned because, you know, Tucker Carlson was such a fun, charming, clever member of the talk band. We together went to the Republican Governors Conference. I went as his kind of date when George Bush was the chairman, I think it was. Working in that room with Tucker was just the most incredible fun. I mean, he was wildly irreverent. He was very much a journalist. He was there to get great material and did. He's nothing like this grotesque, goring-like figure <laughs> that he's become today. It's one of those things of people just utterly changing over the years. I regarded Tucker as one of the greatest talents at talk. He's a very, very good stylist. I mean, I thought that he was like Christopher Buckley-like. His tone, he had a great voice. He was funny as hell, very irreverent about the Republicans while getting great access. So to me, he was a star. I was very excited about having Tucker because I wanted some access to the Republican side, but with a really satirical eye. And he had that in those days. What happened in the meantime? I mean, I'm reading Michael Wolff at the moment, and he still doesn't really explain it. For Sarah Leonard, the roots of Carlson's current manifestation are apparent in the pages of talk. I think if you look at the people in these pages, you see hints of this right-wing flip that would happen in some parts of the establishment. You have very well-established writers. So you have Tucker Carlson, and then you have someone like Walter Kern, who's in this issue. And their whole thing, the thing that makes their writing good and entertaining, is they like to be a little provocative. And they tend to be provocative in kind of shitty ways that are not so easily accepted now. And you can see how one way to respond to that is to join the intellectual dark web or whatever and say that people are snowflakes. And I was very curious to see what Walter Kern, who is one of these guys, had written in this issue. And he wrote a front of the book piece called Weirdos Win Big with the great deck Hey, Jocko, who's the freak now? Normality is the new deformity. Like, uh, the 90s. The copy in this magazine is really good. I hear a lot of it was Sam Sifton. <laughs> really? That's funny. But there's a, there's a phrase in here that, that was like, Walter Kern has never changed. A hundred percent. He's complaining that everybody now to get attention has to have a trauma. So he says everybody has to have their pain, blah, blah, blah. And so Roseanne flaunts failed marriages. Fiona Apple chats up her rape. These days, we all play the pathos card, even presidents, as Monica Lewinsky has testified. Gaining credibility through pain, however, requires legitimate trauma, and lately there just hasn't been enough to go around. Luckily, a one-size-fits-all solution has been found. On the evidence of NBC's new fall drama, Freaks and Geeks, the last <laughs> form of suffering left to otherwise successful Americans is to have been unpopular in high school. This is a review of Freaks and Geeks, basically. <laughs> and then he like goes through talking about how now the hero is the sensitive nerd, blah, blah, blah. And then I feel like in the clincher paragraph, he really defines his sensibility and lashes out at the snowflakes on behalf of the real normal Christian Americans. And he says, still one crucial question remains. Now that feeling excluded is in and youthful inadequacy is a must, who will be the new pariahs? Attractive athletes, Eagle Scouts? There seems to be no way around it. There's no one left. Freaks who can point to their own network TV show are by definition no longer freaks while America's church-going varsity quarterbacks are surely feeling increasingly like outsiders. 
With no one left willing to admit anything but a miserable adolescence, normality may be the new deformity. And you have the sense that he's already feeling victimized on behalf of America's quarterbacks. I mean, it's like really amazing. <laughs> Country highways is already there in the twinkle of his eye or whatever. Totally. totally. I wonder if having contrarian writers leads to that sort of liability of they might go off the rails following their contrarian instincts. Well, they might well do. But I mean, I've always liked contrarians. And I always liked taking risks with writers and letting them have their voices, which is why Tom Stoppard wrote that piece. It was like doing things that you haven't really done before. Much of the magazine's front of book lives under the rubric, The Conversation. Tagline, exploring news and investigating pleasure. I wonder what you thought generally of this conversation section, because I had a bit of a hard time with it, I have to say, because I think it's just so, 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 so overstuffed with such short pieces that by the time I got to the big features at the end, I, my attention was just kind of scattered. I have to admit, I'm sympathetic to an overstuffed front of the book. <laughs> I like a lot going on. I like being able to open it at random and find myself reading something that apparently I missed, you know? <laughs> so I guess I was sort of into it, actually. I think among contemporary magazines, almost the only one that earns its print edition when you don't need a print edition anymore, apart from Lux, which, of course, everybody needs to read in print, is New York Magazine, which has a tremendous front of the book. It's very entertaining. But to your point, a lot of New York Magazine's front of the book is like the 1500 word piece, not interrupted by too much garbage, but with good photography. And I think that is sort of the ideal format, probably. And it's true that the layout, it's distracting to read because everything's in tight columns. And then sometimes they'll insert a box with a different article on a page that's already divided into tight columns. It can be a bit much. Part of that scattered sensibility might be a side effect of the staff having spent much of a year on this first issue. I think because people didn't know what it was going to be, there was so much indecision. A year to lead up to the launch of a magazine is just so much time. <laughs> the ways that assignments were huge and then were shrunken down to a caption. You know, 10,000 word feature. Nope, just kidding. It's going to be a caption. Nope, just kidding. It's going to be a 4,000 word feature. Actually, we're going to run it as a sidebar. That happened in many instances. Sarah Safian, the talk researcher reporter, remembers strategizing around Brown's chaotic whirlwind. She would sometimes want to just blow up the magazine at the 11th hour. And so there was this strategy about pitching her something that you didn't want to pitch it to her too soon in the cycle because she'd get sick of it and it wouldn't see the light of day. So you'd wait to the last minute and then... It was the new shiny thing, like, no, we must do this and scrap all of that. I don't know if she was as bad as the reputation, but there was definitely some of that. And we were all affected by it where we were like, and I've been working on this piece for two weeks and now it's killed. Okay, what's next? You know, you have to trust there's a method to the madness. You probably will hear the story of the summer of 99. It had been going for a year at that point. It was going to launch in September. And when John Kennedy's plane went down, Tina ripped up the whole magazine. It happened over a weekend. And there were a lot of people at Talk Magazine who were very personally close to and associated with John Kennedy, Carolyn Bissett, and his family, some of whom were at the wedding that he was flying to. Her staff was experiencing grievous loss and pain. 
the thing I remember, and this is me maybe beginning to like scratch my head about like how journalism works. As it was happening, there was this push to like, we've got to get a story out. And it's like, but there's no magazine yet. We were still two months away and everything that had been slowly being put into place was ripped up. It was as if it was a daily or a weekly, the sort of frenzy to immediately remake the editorial map and the well. This was a really big explosion in the magazine because there were several of them there who knew him well or who somehow had truck with George magazine, his magazine. And it was a big trauma. Of course, I'm afraid being the editor that I, <laughs> that I am, and I'm being honest here, I thought, oh my God, is this going to change the zeitgeist completely? We're about to come out with the talk magazine with Hillary on the cover. We're going to come out into this massive John F. Kennedy moment and we're not going to have anything. I was very, very concerned about it. One of my contacts said, oh, you should call Peter Beard. He has these childhood pictures of John F. Kennedy Jr. And one of them was of him flying a helicopter. And I tore out the magazine you know, and we put it in the six pages. And so I had my John F. Kennedy cover line and we were lucky because it was just two weeks or 10 days after it happened. And you know what I've learned as an editor, the absolute gangbang morning cycle that happens in America when a celebrity death happens and everybody goes nuts, whether it's Michael Jackson or whether it's John F. Kennedy Jr., whoever it is, there's a kind of media horrendous, like piling on. It explodes and it, people are obsessed and it goes on. And then all of a sudden it ends. And people's like, they don't want to read another story about the celebrity in question. So actually we came out two weeks afterwards and that whole thing had just obsessed the media and in the horrible fickle way of American <laughs> concentration span, it had sort of moved on. And actually it was really great to have these pictures because they were elegiac because it was an incredibly sad and terrible story. And to be able to celebrate it in an elegiac way was just the mood that you wanted to be in actually. So it really worked very well. Among the other challenges confronting the staff was Brown's emphasis on stories told in the first person from the perspective of participants in dramatic events. A prime example in the September 99 issue is The Last Safari by Mark Ross, an American safari guide who survived being taken hostage by Hutu rebels in Uganda. That piece was, I think it was really written by Jonathan Mahler. So the idea was, get the guy to give us the story, we'll team you with a writer-editor and we'll make this narrative into something we can publish. This concept of creating narratives from unlikely places where we'd found those people in the news was a central pole of the idea for Talk Magazine. We really tried to get these voices that were not writers telling their stories, and we were very successful at it, but it's quite an onerous thing to do if you are an editor to extract that material from people. It's interesting to look at some of the more substantial reporting pieces because they very much speak to the time and they turned out to be sort of still relevant. There's a piece on Juarez, Mexico, and the many, many young women who were traveling there to work in factories, and some of them also trying to go to school. And there was a slow building murder of these women. There were just regular murders and bodies would turn up in crazy places and it's it's pretty horrifying and he's correlating this with nafta ending tariffs and the peso being devalued and having this city in which there was this brutal very feminized factory work and of course today there is a 
massive movement in Mexico and actually throughout Latin America against femicide. I was finding it actually helpful to like look back at this reporting from 99 and see how people were explaining its origins at that time. I think the Juarez piece, for example, is not something that really defines the sensibility of this magazine exactly. It's not given the same space as the political profiles, for example. But it is an important part of the work that I think is really strong in this magazine. It gives it some weight. But the bulk of what's here is not exactly that sort of thing. Well, it's interesting to compare that Juarez piece with the trailer park piece. Like the Juarez piece, I think, actually (laughs) engages with people struggling in a real way versus the trailer park piece felt very voyeuristic to me. Totally. I mean, you have a very clear sense of who this magazine is for. This magazine is for people with expendable income, probably in cities. And you can see it in the ads. One of the things that was kind of fun about this, honestly, was looking at all of these ads that I looked at throughout my childhood. You know, like all the supermodels are in these ads. It's like a young Giselle in a Ralph Lauren ad or like Cindy Crawford advertising a sweater. I was like, oh, that was really the the ads of my childhood. But it's all Gucci. You know, like this this is an ad for people spending money. There's an entire article in the front of the book about the return of fur in high fashion <laughs> and the guy who manufactured that demand. And it's kind of a great industry story, but primarily relevant to people who wear fur. Some of the captions, though, do feel like they step over a line. They're, they're the bits where I'm reminded that this is a Weinstein-funded magazine. For instance, the Angelina Jolie shoot and the um, Gwyneth Paltrow shoot. Oh, yeah. Yep, yep. Those are weirdly placed in the magazine, too. Yeah, they're kind of like in the feature well, but they're just hot pictures with like five paragraphs. Right. And the Gwyneth Paltrow one, for instance, which that shoot looks like, especially the the sort of like oh, weird. centerfoldy one. She looks so, so uncomfortable. It's like the worst Gwyneth Paltrow pictures like, it, it's not her sensibility at all. Well, and there's this line at the end of the, the, the caption that sort of speaks to it not being her sensibility. This came out right after um, Shakespeare in Love. Next time Paltrow plays the muse of a famous writer, here's hoping it's the Marquis de Sade. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Holy moly. Clark remembers Weinstein's priority being getting Paltrow on the cover. Definitely Harvey. And like, she didn't want to do that. I mean, to be clear, that was not something she wanted to do. And he was her godfather and he definitely stepped in. And that was a tumultuous conversation. And she really, from what I understood, was pushed into that, specifically the uh, a la Barbarella style. And I think she was uncomfortable. As much as I think we pushed the envelope forward on many things, certainly in that issue for Hillary, that was not a typical stance people took on Hillary at that time. And I, I think it was wonderful that We took that sort of enlightened, glowing, albeit rare take on her. I think we set ourselves back with the Gwyneth thing, but it wasn't very public at the time. Nobody really understood that he controlled her to that level. We're having this conversation five or six years after a recent explosion around gender, power abuse, sexualized power abuse, sexism itself. The reason that these things happen in these culture-shaking explosions is because they are sublimated, accepted, and worked through as part of just how culture and power and business works for years. I wish I could think of all the reference points. Some of the celebrity profiles that have run even well beyond the 90s in the 2000s, 
that were just so vile in their sexist objectification of the women that they covered or openly homophobic. That stuff was just mainstream for such a long time. We were raised with that. But I mean, I remember conversations about feminism that took place at that magazine that were, especially coming from the top down, pretty anti-feminist. Like feminism isn't cool <laughs> directly, which I hasten to say it was not, not cool. It wasn't wrong. The post second wave backlash that lasted through the 80s and the 90s, and certainly was already within a media, there was like a zine culture and a riot girl culture in the 90s that existed on the margins, but it had not extended into mainstream glossy journalism, which was still very much supporting all the anti-feminist backlash impulses of the Reagan era through the 90s. The time was the time. And actually, at that time, feminism was actually uncool, although much of what I published was by very strong women about very strong women. I mean, I think every moment in time, you know, that's the ephemera of magazines is that they're a mirror of their times. It's why magazines are interesting to look back on is like, this was the, the, the zeitgeist at that moment. So there was some of that. A funny thing that I think is smart about Tina Brown, even though I think we can agree these pictures are not persuasive. She's big on not just the intellectual, but the visual scoop. So like, what's a picture that people are going to talk about? And it reminds me that at the time when she edited Vanity Fair, her most famous visual scoop was getting that picture of the Reagans dancing mm. together and kissing. And this was unusually intimate for a president. It's kind of hard to imagine it making the news now, but it did then. And that was a time when the result was that she went on the morning talk shows to like explain that picture to everybody. It was like, it was news in itself. The magazine got covered by television. You kind of get that sense here that they're trying to do something that's visually provocative enough with a celebrity that they have a visual scoop. How did that happen? Like, has anyone ever seen Gwyneth Paltrow look like that? You know, like it's something to talk about. And it has that sensibility more than like, it's not, this is a beautiful photograph. It's, can we make a little bit of news with this photograph? The idea was to make people experiment, which is why we had that wildly <laughs> un-PC, if you like, in those days language, shoot with Gwyneth Paltrow in S&M gear, which probably wouldn't do today either. So it was all about how transgressive can we be visually? And we had this thing we started, which Gabby started, called Dream Roles. The idea was you'd ask a movie star, is there a role you wanted to play? And then we would shoot them in the role, essentially. The Tom Stoppard essay, Unrealizing He is Jewish, was sort of striking because I saw this winter, I guess, Leopoldstadt, which is his play that's running or was running about the Holocaust. And I think the first play that he's written in that vein, which I actually thought was bad. I really did not think it was a good play, but you can see the origin point right here in Talk Magazine. There's a joke in the fake reader's letters at the end where um, Madeline Albright <laughs> writes in, I hope you'll be running more articles by famous people who have suddenly found out that they're Jewish, which that was a big news story in the 90s too, I think, when she came out on the front page of something or other as Jewish. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, you're right. You're right. Christopher Hitchens too, eventually. I mean, it's a, it's a popular thing to be.
we welcome them. I mean, <laughs> I, well, I have mixed feelings about both those people, but it uh, doesn't mean we can't get on that particular boat. I know Tom Stoppard well from London, and he was talking about his early roots that he'd become recently very interested in in Czechoslovakia, his Jewish roots, the pre-Holocaust roots. And I said to him, Tom, nobody really knows anything about your childhood, your background, your antecedents rather. Do you want to write that as a piece for talk? And he did that piece for talk. And it became Leopoldstadt eventually. That was the basis of Leopoldstadt. It starts with him describing a family photograph of a naming, you know, Otto and all these people in his family lineup. And of course, the curtain goes up on Leopoldstadt and that's what you see. Dawson, Brown's assistant at Talk, of course, did not know Stoppard well from London. I remember being like, I'm sorry, who? Tom Stoppard, he would call because I answered the phone and I'm like, hello. And he'd be like, hello, this is Tom Stoppard. I'm like, oh, what? I can't, what? I'm like, I studied Rosencrantz and Guildenstern in high school. How am I talking to you on the phone right now? The last piece of editorial matter in the first issue of Talk is Tina Brown's editor's letter, dubbed TB Notebook. I was slightly embarrassed about doing an editor's letter. I resisted it to the bitter end because I hate them as a genre and I don't like being a perky salesman for the magazine. It doesn't fit my dark temperament. <laughs> but then I thought, you know what, I've sort of got to do it. I mean, I was being told by, I think, Ron Galotti, advertisers want to see a magazine. We can sell the adjacency to Armani if you do an editor's letter. So I think it was all about that Emporio Armani ad, actually. And Emporio Armani was going to be the inside cover, so so was my notebook. It was the other side of it. And then eventually I was able to change it into Tina Brown's diary, which actually people much preferred because it was a much more iconoclastic look at the world. Though attention centered on the launch party, Talk's staff initially had plenty of reasons to keep celebrating in the wake of the first issue's release. And of course, the first issue was a most ginormous success. The magazine just sold off the newsstands. But the basic underpinnings of it were always roiling with this Harvey assault on my ways of working, his crazy temperamental outbursts, and the fact that he didn't understand that the magazine business at all. I mean, we had the partnership with Hearst, who was supposed to be the distribution partner. But I mean, the idea of Harvey and Hearst, you could not get more of a cultural <laughs> clash. Harvey thought that because the first issue sold out completely on the newsstand, you would up your print run by like 30%. That's not how it works. It takes a long time to build circulation for a magazine, many years actually. And the fact that you have one hit issue means nothing about the next issue. It's not like a movie where it opens small and you grow it like that with an injection of cash, which was what Harvey would do with his movies very brilliantly. Nothing like it. Print isn't like that. It doesn't work like that. I'm curious whether his badgering you or his version of what the magazine was, whether that comes through in this first issue at all. It doesn't come through in the first issue, but I think that as the magazine goes on, there's about four or five months where I think you're seeing a less of a clarity in the vision. I mean, the second edition of Talk had Liz Taylor and George Pataki and Charlize Theron, who was at that point unknown, a profile of Vince McMahon. I mean, it was just a weird mix. You saw his influence on the visuals, making the visuals more uncertain. But the magazine was really still very, very good. But my mistake was I put everything good in that first issue. I mean, I had four issues worth of stuff, which I should have hoarded. But I've always been haunted by the great Michael Bennett choreographer, whose line stuck in my mind, which is like, play all your aces, you know, never hold anything back. So I thought I could generate 25 magazines full of this kind of stuff. Actually, it was quite hard to generate quite that amount of great stuff in a short time as you have to, the magazine comes out, you've got to do the next, the next. The next. So I did put too much that was great in that issue because some of it 
really could have been, I mean, there was a fantastic piece by Gerald Posner about the death of Princess Diana. All of these things were giant blockbuster pieces. The Diana piece could have been a cover story in the next issue, but I wantonly threw it all into the first issue. That was probably a big mistake on my part because covers became a bit of a problem after that because Harvey didn't want to have these multiple covers, but then to find these single person covers was difficult because we were a new magazine who had been bullied by Conde Nast. All the PRs have been bullied by Conde Nast to say, if you ever give Talk Magazine a cover, we'll never do business with you again. So it was quite hard to persuade PRs to give us celebrity covers, and it was a boring concept in any case. Talk collapsed in January of 2002, in the wake of the economic downturn that followed 9-11. More than 100 people lost their jobs. In the following years, publisher Ron Galati fully gave up on media and moved to Vermont, essentially never to be heard from again. Dawson remembers the final moments. I was there from the very beginning to the bitter end, to the very, very end. Gabby Doppelt had predicted, she's like, Mac, I have a feeling this magazine ever closes, you're going to be the one who turns the lights out on it. I remember physically turning the lights out at the Tribeca offices the last day it came to pass. How difficult was that decline? It was heartbreaking. It was so heartbreaking. For many of us, it wasn't necessarily our first job, but it was the first job that our heart and souls were in it. Often your first job's not your dream job. This one felt like, holy crap. I remember we were all in shock the day that it folded. I'm an optimist, so I still felt like there's no way this is going to fold. It just can't. There's nothing else like Talk Magazine out there. At that point, Vanity Fair felt very, in a weird way, corporate. At least Talk had a voice. It was sharper. Vanity Fair, and I feel like it still is that way, is very much like, this is where celebrities go. It's like a safe place in a weird way. In that last bit of it, did the stress ever show on Tina? How did she spare the end of it? What's emotion for Tina? I mean, listen, I know she's really emotional about it. Obviously, you can't start a magazine and hire everyone, hire the staff you wanted to begin with, and to see it close... That's incredibly heartbreaking. But I always felt like she just had that, I'm going to deliver the news and I'm going to have to tell everybody. I don't remember if she cried because I can't remember because I cried. Because, you know what I mean? It's one of those things where everyone was so emotional. I remember just being on a very much like, we have to do A, B, and C. And we knew that there were people camped out outside to take photographs of her. And I, I remember feeling a little protective and saying, are you ready to go outside? All of the dramas around the beginning and all of the negative press was very tough for us because we had so many enemies at Conley Nurse, they were constantly feeding these stories against us. The Times was particularly bad. I think that they ran like seven negative stories about talk. And unfortunately, as you well know, it doesn't matter what's really going on. If you get negative press in the New York Times, it chases away advertising. But finally, in that six months before 9-11, we had really started to get traction when people began to really like us. The advertisers were calming down. It was really going well. And then 9-11 happened and there was just a complete advertising collapse. Now, obviously it would have been much better if we'd simply said, okay, we're going to go bi-monthly or something, you know, but Harvey at that point was on such a rampage. He was hysterical because everybody was hysterical. It's like, you know, when these things happen, it's the end of the world. So he then of course wanted to slash and burn and Hearst got extremely anxious and it just became like, we're not going to continue. And I think it was a real, real shame. It should have gone on. Look, every magazine is sort of now, I mean, ultimately we probably would have been on borrowed time, but I think we would have had a wonderful 10 years and it would have been an iconic success actually at the end of it. So it folded and then I'm on the front pages of the New York Post as a complete loser. <laughs>
And I had to then endure the tsunami of negative failure stories. And I just was very upset about the staff, the band, you know, because they were so good. And when you've dug out a Sam Sifton and you've dug out a Jonathan Marler and a Daniel Mattoon and all the Virginia Heffernan and Rebecca Traced. So having got this incredible group of people together, to have them all stolen by the newspaper that was constantly trashing us. Yeah, it was a bit of pill. But I went off and I wrote my book on Diana and I just turned a page. But that's what really upset me was having found those people after such duress to get them and train them and bring them on and then have it all blown up. So it was upsetting. And of course, Harvey, in his wonderful way, immediately then said he wasn't going to pay out my contract. <laughs> Has Harvey ever seen a contract that he wants to honor? And so then I had to do battle to get paid. And the whole thing was just unbelievable. And yet the end of it all, it was kind of an amazing time. I have no regrets about doing talk. It was a wonderful adventure for me. I'm hoping to ask the editors who come on future episodes how they would translate the magazines we talk about to the present day. But since Sarah Leonard runs Lux, a magazine that in some sense is a response to glossies like talk, I was curious what she's taken away from the premiere issue. Are there elements of this magazine that you would want to steal for future design elements or editorial elements of Lux? I've always liked her high-low sensibility. You could say that today magazines just aren't relevant as a form. You know, we all read online. We're not in the era of 80s Vanity Fair anymore. And so you really have to think about why you want to make a magazine. And for me, it is that juxtaposition of different elements within one space and the sort of sensibility and the community and the point of view you develop based on that. And so I think a lot about people who have done that well. And I do think she's someone who, in her own way, did that very well. Tina Brown was immediately able to summon what her magazine would be doing, had it survived to the day we spoke in early October. What would we be doing now? We'd be doing incredible stories. I have a kind of fantasy magazine life sometimes where I'm assigning Marie Brennan to do the kick-ass piece on Bob Menendez. I look at that Bob Menendez story and I think, oh my God, gold bars, the wife hanging out with the housewives of New Jersey. It's such a classic, brilliant talk magazine take out. There are some stories I just thirst to do and they would have been in the talk magazine, I think, if, if it had been in love. For some of the staff, the community around the magazine never died. My best friends in the world are other people who were assistants at Talk Magazine. The people I vacationed with for 20 years were all people who had been at Talk Magazine. Not all of them even at the same time as me. It was such a tight group. I have spent my adulthood alongside them. I have had the career that I had because of the people I met at Talk Magazine. And I've had the personal life and the social circles that I've had because of Talk Magazine. And editorially, speaking now as a journalist, which I was certainly not when I was there, I feel incredibly grateful to have experienced that, to have had some view of that journalistic world, which I have not had since. And it taught me an enormous amount about power and money.